This is the Macworld Podcast, episode 460 for June 10th, 2015. We're brought to you this week by Red Hat and The Great Courses. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the Matt World Podcast, a place where we scale the cliffs of insanity on your behalf. <laughs> we'll be doing some climbing uh, this week, but first we've got to take care of our crampons and our ice axes before we go in. This is Glenn Fleischman. I'm a senior editor at Macworld, and I'm joined, as always, by Susie Oaks, the executive editor of Macworld. Hello, Susie. Hi, Glenn. This altitude is making me dizzy. Belay that. I mean, no, literally, belay that. <laughs> Climb on. Oh, man. Rock it out. Uh, so we're talking this week about things that happened so far at the Worldwide Developer Conference, which got underway on Monday. And uh, a lot of- happening. Yeah, a lot of things. Uh, you were there on the spot. I was. To, uh, watch a band whose name I can't remember perform live, which is great. It's not the Tony weekend, ba- but it's the without the last e, and I was totally spelled it like you know my my dad would spell it, and was chastised by a, my cooler <laughs> colleague sitting next to me. I was like, I haven't heard of the weekend. Are they good? And she's like, it's it's just one person, and yes, he's good, and you spelled it wrong. It's like Flickr, yeah, or Twitter, yeah, uh, yeah. So it was very tech industry, you know, to drop unnecessary vowels. I just I enjoy that. Uh, yeah, that's right. The weekend, not Tony Bennett. That's that's the last act. And I Drake saw was live. there, but he did not perform. I thought he was Johnny. He Ives gave a little monologue about Canada and music. He came up on screen in the video. I was like, Johnny Ives looks great with that. Johnny Ives looks great with that beard. And I was like, Oh no, that's not Johnny. There were a lot of shout outs to Canada, I have to say. I was sitting <laughs> right by Rene Ritchie and they talked about poutine and like they had Drake and he was like, when I was growing up, I never thought any superstar could come out of Canada and somewhere Celine Dion burst into tears. And oh yeah, it was it was a very Canadian WWDC. It's uh, well, we know we know they're trying to take us over. It's all a slow moving plots. So they started with the comedians. Now the musical acts are coming. Then the tanks roll in. That's the secret. <laughs> so a lot of things that were predicted before WWDC did not come to pass. Although I noticed uh, in the usual uh, authorized Apple leaks that are presented as if they're scoops kind of situation, a lot of stuff was disclosed just before WWDC to deflate the anticipation of things like uh, Apple, a new Apple TV, uh, Apple TV channel lineups, um, and uh, so forth. So it uh, it wound up being a little bit less then was being built up. Uh, you never know exactly what's leaking out of Apple intentionally or by accident, but you know they do controlled leaks, of course. And you see certain things in the Wall Street Journal or Recode or other publications, and it's clear that somebody inside Apple is uh, is trying to um, uh, modify the news a little bit so that either to build up or, or strip down expectations. So um, in the end, this was like maintenance WWDC. This is like, hey, we've got a new iOS, we got a new OS 10, and um, they're going to be better. <laughs> All right, yay! And I'm like, cheers, yay! Yeah, without any new hardware for people to go out and buy, like there was nothing that you could go buy, which is fine for a developer conference because they, you know, talked about a lot of cool software improvements and developer tools, but um, you know, regular people. Um, you know, just normal nerds would be like, okay, like what did Apple announce? Like when, when can I get it? And it's, it's just updates coming later. Um, but I think especially the watch OS updates are really going to help make the hardware, make the Apple watch hardware, you know, seem more useful and do more things and just, you know, 
be be a, more of a platform that right now is just kind of a gadget. Yeah, you know, it's funny. The watch thing is a big deal, obviously. What, are they calling it watch OS? Is it being called 2.0? Watch OS 2, yeah. Watch OS 2. So, I mean, that's probably the biggest news, but it's been so anticipated since essentially the September announcement. We all yeah. knew that it wasn't going to be until you know, like fall 2015 before the tools would be available for it. It's like now they're you know releasing them and doing sessions and developers will finally have access to start uh, messing with this stuff, but it still feels like a huge amount of buildup. So I'm like, all right, yeah, it's out and we know a little more, but um, as uh, I think John Gruber pointed out, someone pointed out that some of the videos shown for Watch OS 2 are actually things that were in, shown initially last yeah. September and then, <laughs> and then didn't pulled. make the Watch OS 1 release. Right, yeah. Yeah, like the watch face where you could put a picture and make that into a watch face. I think that was that was teased in September and pulled. So, so yeah, it's it's making the watch feel like a more complete product. The early, the the first one felt a little unfinished with, you know, its sluggishness and and just the the huge disparity in quality between the first party apps that could use the sensors and run on the watch and the the third party apps that were you know just showing a little UI from the phone and offloading everything to the phone. You know what's weird is I feel like Apple, I don't want to say they missed the boat, but given that they're doing more public betas, like both uh, OS X, the next version 10.1 will be called El Capitan, and we will be sure to insert many puns in this podcast about that, yay. and uh, yeah, and uh, iOS 9. So we know you know those those releases are uh, are coming, but uh, and they'll be out, I'm sorry, they'll be out in beta versions, not just to developers, but both will be available in public betas. And it's uh, not unusual now for OS 10 to be available to the general public as a beta. But um, isn't this the first time that iOS, I thought that's what they said on the stage, or I thought it had been available as a public beta in a previous release. Is that not right? I think there's a limited iOS public beta for iOS 8. Like some people got 8.4 8. through that. Yes. Wasn't it? Yeah, it wasn't as quite to, as big. Yeah, so that'll be interesting and we will tell people why they shouldn't. We've talked about it before. We'll tell people again to not get involved unless they're really secure. But here's the thing about the watch, especially seeing the watch... OS 2 announcements is um, Apple doesn't like to pull a Google. They ship stuff or they don't. You know, they, they rarely, when they do a beta thing, it'll be like, you know, when Siri was early or a few things. And those betas often don't pan out well. Like you think, well, maybe they should have just waited, but they need mass adoption to help build the product. So Apple is typically, we ship a finished product. And even if it's not perfect, we'll improve it. Um, you know, and we have issues with that, you know, first shapes of iCloud and iCloud Drive and so forth. But the watch... I don't know if they had said we're going to release watch beta and anyone we're going to you know prioritize developers but anyone can buy one in our initial unlimited supply until watch OS 2 comes out and then we're going to ramp up. Uh, like they can't do that. Apple it's just not in their DNA but that's kind of what they did. They released a product that really is not feature complete. They told us when it's going to be feature complete. And um, it's kind of a sketch of what we think the thing will be and I'm excited for watch OS 2 cuz I think that will be actually what I've been waiting for. <laughs> but but uh, I, don't, I don't think Apple, it just doesn't feel like that's something they would ever do. It's just, they don't do this kind of thing. Yeah, I mean, they, they definitely test it, you know, around. So there were people wearing watches before we were wearing watches. But yeah, it did feel a little incomplete. But I mean, it's only six weeks old is the other thing to keep in mind. Mm -hmm. So when the first iPhone came out, we were, you know, stuck with web apps for like a full year. And then, then they launched the SDK in the App Store. So so this is they get now that they have a platform and that they need to build the platform and it's not enough to just build a device. So I was glad that they were like really on top of it and they're pushing out watchOS 
relatively quickly after having shipped the actual watch. And then since the watch is rolling out a little more slowly than an Apple product, you know, m- might be one that they've been making for a while, like an iPhone or an iPad, where they can ramp up production and make a bajillion and sell them all right away. The watch has been kind of trickling out. Um, one of our writers, Mike Simon, just got his like 50 days after ordering oh it or whatever. So, yeah. So, yeah. Um, but... Yeah, so I think you know fixing fixing some of the early problems six weeks in isn't that bad, and the watch did does do most of the things that it set out to do. It's just you know it wasn't it wasn't quite as complete as a platform, and Apple's other devices are all so you know well rounded and well thought out, and with deep capabilities that it just felt weird that it had an Apple logo on it. You know, it doesn't have an Apple logo on it, but you know, it was, it was weird <laughs> that it was an Apple product that, w- that felt that unfinished. Like if this had been an Android Wear watch, I think people would have been like, this is the best oh. Android Wear watch on the market. So yeah, it's also, it's a, you know, they did the usual thing, which is it's an almost perfect piece of hardware. It's an yeah. amazing made thing. And it's weird to have the software fall so far short. And it's just a matter of time. Software takes time and they're trying to optimize uh, for a tiny device. But I can't recall ever buying an Apple product before that I felt like, oh, no, <laughs> no I right? you know, not like I should so have waited, spoiled. but more like, yeah, and it's you know, like the iPhone, I, I was tweeting about this, and people are like, look, the original iPhone was like this. I'm like, no, the entire smartphone market, I, I just, uh, Jeff Carlson and I had collaborated in uh, 2006 on a massive Macworld feature on smartphones that worked with Mac OS X at the time, which, uh, you know, so we looked at BlackBerry, we looked at uh, uh, no, Trios, no, 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 Nokia, and, yeah, yeah, and uh, Jeff was an expert in uh, in uh Palm and Trio uh, smartphones at the time. And, uh, you know, there were several options. There was some Android stuff even then uh, that was very limited but interesting. And so there were five or six things we surveyed. And uh, it was all terrible. We were like, okay, well, if you really need, you know, Windows, you could do this, but it doesn't work. And you have to get this third party and there's this, you know. And so not only was it not integrated with OS X, but the capabilities were super limited. So when the original iPhone shipped, it's like, yes, it doesn't have 3G, but 3G is a battery burner in June 2007. So this battery life is amazing compared to all the 3G phones on the market. Market, which shipped before the chips were small enough. And, you know, yes, it doesn't have cut and paste, which was ridiculous, but whatever. But the browser alone and email on the go in a usable interface, those two things by themselves uh, were killer features and they worked from day one. I mean, mm-hmm. when I, I, I got my hands on uh, in January of 2007 at the uh, Macworld, I got a touch, you know, the early like, number of people did the very Pre, you know, the preview one. And um, and it worked then too. I mean, I know it was a wired demo, but I was able to browse any site I punched in and so forth. So yeah. like the, the watch is not that finished yet and it will be this fall. And so I'm excited to see it. But, you know, I, I'm going on about this. I know we've talked about this before, but uh, maybe we should run through a few of the things that uh, WatchOS 2 will bring with it. Because, uh, I mean, so native apps we talked about, and that's what developers are all Working like mad on now, I'm sure. What else is going to come? Uh, we've got a bunch of other little things that'll be coming with uh, WatchOS 2. Yes. So third-party complications, which is really big. Um, we have a story up on Macworld that was posted Tuesday um, by Mike Simon, where he just got his watch, as I mentioned. And he's like, you know what? Complications are the killer app here. Like the actual apps, I never go to my home screen. And I thought that was really insightful because I've had my watch for six weeks and I never go to my app home screen either. Because most of the apps just aren't that amazing. And if I need information, I get it through notifications and glances. 
and um, I go to some of I go to the activity app by tapping on the complication. I go to my calendar app by ca- tapping on the complication. Oh, so, we just figured out why I don't like the watch as much as other people. I use apps all the time in the watch, like oh, the off off apps and news apps. And they take too long. And well, then I, I got, know, I got my drives, arm up there and I'm waiting for it to load, and then yeah. it times out and the screen goes dark. And I'm this like, exactly well, I feel stupid. My, <laughs> my experience seems worse because I'm using the things that that are the slowest to load. Okay, well, this this explains. Well, the complications are like uh, like if you consider your watch face, which is the def- default thing you see, mm-hmm. the complications are there's like a few spots you can tap that have. Um, uh, you know, like right now it's a stopwatch. You can have a stopwatch. You can have uh, local time. There's a lot of stuff depending on the face. But each of those things is – it's like your home screen. It's just a different kind of home screen. It's like yeah. your optimized dashboard. It's, you know what it is? It's widgets, right? It's widgets. It's widgets exactly. for your dashboard except it's useful. Yeah. So you can have your battery life as a complication and then if you tap that, it'll go to you know the battery life glance and show you a little more. You can have your activity rings as a complication and you know you can just kind of glance at them and see, okay, they're about halfway full and then you can tap on that and it'll go right to the activity app so you can see you know more information. Um, calendars are great for complications. Um, weather, weather's awesome as a complication because it's just, you don't even have to press anything. All you have to do is raise your hand and you see a few things. So watch OS 2 will let third parties put complications on there. Some of them shown off in the demos included, um, like a travel app that could show you your upcoming flights and, um, the VW app, which would let you turn on the heat and the defroster in your car from your watch before you even get in your car. So people who live where there's scary winter, this is a game changer. This is what I, I want complications. I mean, the next, like, uh, Modification. This is complications that would change contextually, like geofence complications. Mm-hmm. Like at my house, I want those things. Then when I uh, walk yes. away from my house and I'm at work, or I'm driving. It just swaps between faces or complications, and I, that seems like a, I can can only imagine that will come because that's got to be coming. Yeah, because it's uh, kind of what they're doing now with Siri on the phone. We're going to get to that, the predictive assistance kind of stuff. Yeah, but if they us- had the location thing on the watch, so yeah, you could have your HomeKit, you know, uh, display on your on as a complication and tap into that right away. So everything is going to be, your most important things are going to be one tap away if you can have them as complications on your watch face. And they're all, because they'll run natively, you'll no longer, you won't, cur- I mean, the developers will be able to write native complications that run on the on the phone, mm-hmm. on the watch rather. So uh, it'll seem, it won't just seem speedy, it will be speedy. So it'll suddenly, I think, dramatically well as you say i think this is what's going to change it for me is the instantaneity of it it's like every time you have to wait or do multiple taps to get to something that should be one away it, it yeah. makes it seem less useful and if it's one literally one tap then it's awesome totally um and then the a cool thing that kind of involves complications is this feature called time travel and that's if you're looking at the watch face and you can turn the digital crown and the things on your watch will start to move. So there's, I can't remember what the watch face is called that has the, is it utility? Modular. Modular is the watch oh, face that's basically okay. just a collection of complications. Mm-hmm. And so if with watchOS 2, once you get modular up, you see, you know, your battery life, you see maybe your next appointment, you see the temperature, and that's all for what is happening right now. So then what you'll be able to do is you'll twist the digital crown and that will move you forward or back in time. So if you're 
have a busy day ahead and you look, your watch will show you your next appointment. And if you turn the crown, it'll show you the one after that and the one after that. And it'll the, the time will start to tick up. So you'll see kind of what hours of the day different things will happen. You know, your flight is on time. You need to leave for the airport at this time. The thing that I love is that the battery life complication will update to show you, okay, if you twist ahead to four o'clock when your flight's going to leave, your battery life is estimated to only be at, you know, 20% then. Oh, So yeah. you might want to go wow. ahead and plug in. Like that's huge. I want that on my phone so much. I want that, that on everything so I have with a battery <laughs> to be like, can you just predict for me what my battery life will be like later when I actually need to use this? So, oh, I never. That's yeah, and it, yeah. Especially with history, I mean, once it, this is the learning thing, they should be able to give you a better and better estimate over time as you use things. Mm-hmm. Well, since we're talking about time travel, let's travel into the future by way of the past, as time usually works. And thank one of this week's sponsors, Red Hat. So at this point in time, I think everyone understands that in the right situations, open source software is important technology. It's useful and it's powerful. And in fact, the most successful open source project of all time is this little thing we like to call the internet. The internet was founded on the principles of being able to look at and modify source code. That's kind of how we got to where we are. Tim Berners-Lee put the World Wide Web into the public domain. There's Berkeley Unix, TCP IP, BSD Linux, Android, the Internet of Things. The, The only real disagreement that happens is whether open source can be used in an enterprise situation to do important work. And that's where Red Hat comes in. They were one of the earliest companies to help make Linux a reliable, consistent product, and that's still being released in that fashion. But they also were the first to really focus on Linux as an enterprise product. They started with Red Hat Enterprise Linux, and today they certify and support application development, storage, and cloud infrastructure for every conceivable enterprise deployment. You will find Red Hat Enterprise Linux everywhere. The New York Stock Exchange, DreamWorks, every airline, healthcare company, telecom giant, and the Fortune Global 500 rely on Red Hat. In fact, more than 90% of all the companies in the Fortune 500 are Red Hat customers. So why is that? Because they get the powerful, constantly improving innovation of open source without the risk of having to go it alone. It's that simple. Red Hat Enterprise software is trusted in the world's most demanding data centers. You can find out what they can do for your enterprise and your data center at redhat.com. So thanks to Red Hat, one of the sponsors this week of the Macworld podcast. And now we return to the present, the past, and the future to talk more about Watch OS. So time travel lets you spin that crown. Uh, I think um, what's interesting even about the watch, we were talking earlier about you know this being inc- uh, uh, maintenance release stuff for iOS and OS X. Uh, there are obviously new features for watchOS because we're seeing all this, but a lot of what they're pushing is just the, um, is the developer app part. So they're not, uh, it's not like, okay, well, here's 400 new watch features. It's more like, here's a few things, you know, time travel complications will be available, but that doesn't mean that they're out. Uh, there's a nightstand mode, which is cool. Yeah. The nightstand mode looks kind of nice. I don't know. I probably wouldn't use my clock as a I mean, there's there's so many other things that that didn't really strike me as like, oh, I'm going to use that. I can't wait for that. But I'm sure a lot of people will find it useful. That's part of what strikes me, though, is that it's that's the kind of thing they talked about, because what they're really trying to do is they're trying to keep people, you know, get people keyed up to uh, be ready to um, see what it's going to be like. 
Yeah, it's kind of out of Apple's hands now. Like they they made the watch and they built the platform and they gave the developers the tools, but Apple can't really come out and be like, and now the watch has like, you know, 40 new features because there's just not that much to it. You know, it's only got so many sensors and, you know, unless they're going to like pull out new apps or something, like new first party apps that we didn't have, which I don't think we need at all because there's too many <laughs> to, to begin with. Um, the, you know, they, they can't really come out and be like, okay, like we, we vastly improved this thing. Thing that we just released six weeks ago. Um, so, so yeah, it's kind of up to the developers now to, to be like, here's your tools, go ahead and run with them. And it was the developer conference. So, oh, yeah, so it's understandable that, um, th- that they really focused on that because I think that's going to be that's going to be the thing that really puts it you know above and beyond. Like Android's a really cool platform, but iOS just smokes it in the app ecosystem. And I think the watches are going to be the same thing. Here's the thing that was weird to me, and tell me if you think this was odd as well. They didn't have any developers up there to show new uh, WatchOS 2 apps. Yeah. Um, that was strange omission. Kevin Lynch showed a few that, you know, that he showed, like Vine and the VW app that I mentioned, and he showed um, uh, some other stuff. So he showed a few third-party things in his demo. So maybe it was just kind of to keep it moving because when they bring up a, a demo, it, you know, it can kind of slow everything down. And watch apps would, you know, they take like 10 seconds to demo. So well, that's true. And so he did. Yeah, I know. It just it felt like this should be their showcase, even though it's developers yeah, conference. Yeah, that's true. And uh, because they spent so much time on the music thing later, which we can talk about, but um, to no good end <laughs> on the music part. Like, here's an hour of people. But, you know, the thing that we actually are making billions of dollars off that we're trying to uh, make our next thing, uh, two tiny improvements are worth mentioning are uh, you're no longer limited to 12 friends, thank oh, goodness. yeah, yeah. And uh, although the interface is still going to be irritating and horrible because of uh, it's not the way you – it's not the way you – having a circle of people with initials. So here's a funny story. I have a friend who has a numbed internet. She has a uh, professional job. So she has her actual name and then she has an internet name, which is what I mostly know her by, right? So she mm-hmm. has a different set of initials. But the thing is because I'd set a nickname for her in contacts, on the watch it was showing one set of initials. But when you t- – it, it showed her name. So I had no, you know, so I'm looking at like, how many people do you think of that you remember by their initials? And when you rotate the crown around, then you see their image shows up if you have an avatar for them, right? But it's like, it's still it, like a circle of people with initials still seems like the most asinine way to, to access yeah. people you know. So I don't know. I don't like using the crown to scroll around in a circle because yeah. if you have a long list, like if you're in your actual contacts list, or if you're in the music app and you have a bunch of music synced, scrolling through just a, you know a straight up and down list with the crown is delightful. Like I really like doing that. Yes. But for some reason, scrolling around that circular, that circular friends ring is really difficult. Like I get why they made it. Yeah. Like you know, twelve people in a circle. It's a watch. Yay! But it's it's not. That's as not how easy I think of do. people. Though. Look, we're primates. We probably have. Uh, I forget what's. There's a number. <laughs> Euler, not Euler's number. There's a number about. Uh, like we can have up to 500 people in our social circles, the size of a small village. They've done some, you know, chimpanzee and other tests. And so like 12 people doesn't cut it for me. Like my, you know, I'm, I'm not saying I have 500 intimate friends, but I'm still like, you know, 12 or even 150 in that organization. I just, I don't know. So there's one last feature to mention for watchOS 2, which is activation lock. Because of course the internet freaked the F out for a little while. Pardon my French or my Anglo-Saxon, uh, because the watch could be reset and erased even if they're, if you didn't have the passcode. And headlines ran, I wrote about this for Macworld, but headlines ran that were like, 
the Apple Watch is the easiest watch to steal. It's like, no, it's not easy to steal. <laughs> it doesn't make it easier to steal because you can reset it. It makes it easier to fence if you happen to steal a watch. You can fence it in a way that the iPhone with activation lock can't. So Apple's answering that criticism. A few months will have activation lock, which will mean that once you've registered a watch and it's uh, connected to your account, just like an iPhone, you have to actually be able to uh, log in in some fashion. On the iPhone, you have to log into the iCloud account that it's associated with in order to unlock the phone. Even after it's been erased, ostensibly the watch will be the same thing. You'll have to pair with the phone or have some connection with something to be able to log in and, and prove your identity. Yeah, when you pair so it with a it new phone, it'll just have you sign in to iCloud. So. Yeah, so it's like it makes it you know ostensibly unfensible, which is which is what's led to a huge decline in uh, iPhone uh, theft uh, in most major cities. Now I've seen like even as the number uh, I was looking at a study just a few months ago, like even as the number of iPhones uh, has risen enormously, the quantity the the actual number stolen has dropped. So like it's a it's the equivalent of in some places they're saying it's a the drop was, you know, 25% year over year, but there are 100% more iPhones. So the drop is actually even more precipitous per capita. So um, let's take a moment before we start talking about iOS 9 and uh, thank one of uh, another of our sponsors this week. This is uh, our Egghead sponsor, The Great Courses, because we all like to have big eggheads. And Susie, uh, can you tell us about The Great Courses? Sure. Um, the Great Courses is a really cool service where you can buy courses to watch online. You can download them to your device. You can stream them to your device with the mobile apps. Um, you can uh, get them on DVD. You could even get audio courses on CD. So however you like to learn, The Great Courses has you covered. And they cover so many different topics. Um, the one that I'm recommending now is called The Fundamentals of Photography. It's by Joel Satori, and he's a National Geographic photographer. So he knows what he's doing. He knows how to take a good picture, and he can help you learn how to take a good picture. And that's everything from um, using your camera settings, something I'm still confused by, um, and just to, you know, lighting and framing and composition and that kind of those tricks that photographers know where you can take a good picture with any camera and you're not dependent on your equipment. Um, and it's not just like listening to someone talk either. He gives you tips. He gives you fun activities to apply the knowledge you're learning. So you'll feel like it's hands-on and interactive, but you don't have to actually, you know, leave your house and, and go sign up for a class and have to critique other people's work. And so it's very individual, but, but still really fun and interactive. So I've been enjoying it a lot, and I think you should check it out too. The Great Courses is celebrating their 25th anniversary this year, and they have over 500 courses in all kinds of subjects, science, math, history, mindfulness, um, art and music, whatever you're into, and you can find something there. Um, you can download those, you can stream them to the apps, get them on DVD or CD, and there's a special limited time offer for Macworld listeners. They're offering eight of their best-selling courses, including the Fundamentals of Photography, those are at 80%, up to 80% off their original price. So it's a really good deal to learn something new. And you can take advantage of this offer by going to thegreatcourses.com slash Macworld. That's thegreatcourses.com slash Macworld. Thank you so much to The Great Courses for sponsoring the podcast. Thank you. And now on to iOS 9. 
you know, it's funny that uh, all the OS 10 versions have code names and we're just like, eh, it's iOS 9. <laughs> eh, 9. 999. Uh, so nine times. <laughs> we'll, we'll talk about El Capitan, the El Capitan. The, uh, it's going to be so hard for, for me to say it without saying it like that. El, El Capitan. Capitan. Mon Capitan. Uh, so we'll talk about that in a moment, the OS 10 release, but, uh, cause it has a little bit less going on than it, but we're going to talk about iOS nine because, uh, this is a maintenance release. This is kind of, you know, so a lot of us have been hoping, praying, wishing, uh, lighting incense to, um, hope that Apple does not try to do what it did with iOS seven, I mean, six less so, but seven and eight, Ah, oh, it just, and then eight point, uh, what one. And then, you know, it felt like they were just killing us with a lot of little cuts because nothing was totally polished. Nothing totally worked the right way. We had to keep relearning things. Those of us writing books had to keep making new screen captures because we're, I make, I'm so lazy. Uh, but, uh, but this seems much more like, okay, look, Hey, you know, we're just, it's like full of enhancements. Everything's going to work better. It's going to be, you know, guys just calm down. It's going to be great. And that that seems to be what they're stressing here. Yeah, there's, they're fixing a lot of little things that bug people. So iOS 8 had a slower adoption rate than is typical for new versions of iOS because people tried to up, download it over the air and it required like five gigabytes of free space to, to install it that way. So one of the things that they fixed in iOS 9 is that they got it down to only 1.3 gigabytes when you're updating it over the air. So that will you know solve a big headache for people. Um, the shift key in iOS 8, I don't know if you've noticed, it's really hard to <laughs> tell. <laughs> um, previously, when you tapped the shift key, it would glow this nice friendly blue. And you were like, yep, that, that's a key that's been pressed. But now it changes from gray and white to like white and gray. And it's just really hard for, for people, um, and by people I mean me, to <laughs> tell if, you, if you're in shift or, or what. So the, they're going to fix that. And... Um, it's, it, it actually will change the letters on the keys between uppercase and lowercase. I have a, th what? yeah, I know. I have a That's third party crazy. keyboard that did that and I kind of hated it, but I think it was just cause it was so different than what I was used to. So I had when the, when they changed the shift key style, I had some, somebody on Twitter, we had some conversation about it and they said, wait a minute. Glenn, if you can't tell when the shift keep status has changed, then what hope do I have I'm since you're such like such an this iPhone is your junkie job. and it still confuses me and we've had this for, you know, like nine months. So yeah, that's no I good. Don't know. It's a um there's gonna be a search function for settings. Um they, they sometimes they move settings around, like my passcode yes. settings used to be, you know, in privacy and now it's in touch ID and passcode. I, I don't know if that's a good example, but sometimes settings move around. So now the settings thing will have a little search bar. That's going to be great. Um, so there are a lot of little fixes, but then they did do a few big things. Like Siri is getting a pretty major overhaul and spotlight yeah, this seems like a, as well. Yeah, this seems like a big, uh, like it's not a response to Google now. I mean, it's a natural progression. They need to be doing stuff like this. But, but certainly Google Now sets the bar pretty high. Yeah, so it's Google Now-like in that it looks at different sources of information on your phone to guess what you're going to need next um, based on you know what you typically do at that day, what you typically do at that time, in that location. Um, so that's going to be cool. It has some you know contextual awareness. But they want to differentiate it from Google Now by really stressing that everything stays on the phone, that it's not, you know, uploading everything you do to its cloud to process, you know, there what it thinks you're going to do and send it back down, um, which is what Google Now does. It all happens in the cloud. 
And Apple's like, nope, nope, we don't want to know any of this. We're not going to be saving, you know, what what apps you use. We don't have, you know, creepy file on you. We're we're really <laughs> just doing this on the device. And if we ever have to go off the device, like to get, you know, traffic updates, if we're going to give you directions, um, we will do that anonymously, and we won't store it. So Apple's really pushing the privacy thing. But I don't know. I mean, I've used Google Now a little bit, and the really freaky thing about it is when those things, those, those, um, the context does come from from the cloud, from off the device, because then it really feels like your phone is reading your mind. If if you search for something in Chrome on your desktop, and then two days later it shows up as a card on your phone, you're like, whoa, that's that's wild, and. So yeah, I mean, but it does require that Google is is all up in your business. So, <laughs> so some people don't like that, but I've never really minded it. And then the other thing I love about Google now is that it's on the home screen. So right. I guess Siri is going to have some cool things where it can suggest things for you if you connect your Bluetooth headphones and it knows that this is the time of day you usually go running. It could pop up your running playlist, but then if you connect to your Bluetooth stereo in your car and it's the time of day that you usually commute, it could say, oh, are you about to commute? Do you want to pick up your audio book that you were listening during yesterday's commute? So that's kind of nice. It'll have some some context. Um, one of the things that Google showed at I.O. was um, how they were going to be able to use information in apps um, as as for, for context for, for Google Now. So mm-hmm. Apple's going to do something kind of like that, too. If you're looking at, like, say you're going on a trip and you're looking up Airbnbs or hotels or something in Safari and you find one that you kind of like, you can, um, you know, press the home button to, to call up Siri and say, hey, remind me about this. And just, you know, not say anything else. You don't have to say the name of the hotel. You don't have to say the website it was on. But she knows that you were just looking at something on the web. So that's what she's going to remind you about. This all this contextual stuff seems just great too because uh, it feels like the kind of thing that should be there. Like you do certain things, uh, you know. A good example is like Fantastical has retrained me on uh, iPhone and on my Mac with uh, version two. It's it's retrained me. I just want to say like make an appointment at eleven with Susie. Uh, remind me fifteen minutes before. Put it on my work calendar. And I'm like, okay. So if I have to do this, no. If I want to do something similar. Uh, if I was using the calendar app or something else, it seems like a slog. Mm-hmm. Or if I want to use Siri, it's just not there. So the idea that like you get, <clears throat> I mean, micro, what are they called? Uh, micro formats and email have been supported in various ways for a long time. And, and in fact, that's going to be improved in uh, the new uh, mail in El Capitan. But um, like this, the fact you get an email and it has a flight reservation as their example, a restaurant confirmation, iOS 9 is going to say, hey, uh, do you want to want me to make this calendar event for you. Or, um, you know, there's traffic coming up. So maybe uh, uh, because you have a calendar event that says you're supposed to be at this place at this time, you should probably leave now. Yeah. <laughs> like these are like this is like, oh, this is a natural extension that makes things better as opposed to being something that's, you know, totally different. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I've wanted more more location aware kind of things for a while. I've, I've wanted location aware settings and, and security settings. So if I'm in my home network, I don't have to use my passcode. But if I'm away from my home network, my passcode comes on. So, so the, the, they didn't announce that, but but these kind of you know having having your phone understand more about what's happening around it, I think is is a good step forward. Oh, I like this too. Is so even if you don't have someone in your contacts, if they if you get yeah. a call from an unknown number, it's going to try to figure out 
who it's from. And I do this all the time. I get, you know, sometimes spam calls or calls from PR people. And I'll often, like, if I get a call from a known number on my phone, I typically don't pick yeah, it up. Yeah, nobody does. Unless I know, yeah, unless somebody's in the hospital or something. And I'm like, listen, to the message is almost never something I wanted to hear. Occasionally it is. But I love, so then I'll, I'll punch the number before I even listen to the message. Or if there is no message, I'll punch the number into Google and figure out who it was. And this is essentially going to be, you know, doing some kind of uh, search information. Uh, because most, well, I shouldn't say most, but many numbers from companies and from a lot of individuals like PR people uh, or folks who you know do business, their number is there somewhere or it'll relate to something in some – you got an email, you didn't add the phone number to a contact, but someone signed their signature with yeah, that email. Yeah, there's all kinds of numbers in my email that aren't in my contacts. That. So yeah, it'll look, at, it'll look through your email. I'm not sure if it searches the wider web too, but it might. I'm trying to figure it out. It would be interesting if it – did. I mean, then that might be exposing because it's pushing that number out into a search. So they'd have to anonymize. I mean, then it may be exposing information. So perhaps not. But the way it suggests it, it doesn't It doesn't say it doesn't do it. It makes it sound more expansive. So maybe they're not. It definitely checks your email. Decided. They said that. And then, um, I mean, what would even be cooler? Sometimes I just Google the, the area code. I don't know if anyone does this. If you see an area code you don't understand mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. then you're like, 801, what is that? And then you Google it and you find out it's Wyoming and you're like, yeah, that's for sure. Know what I know. And it's <laughs> Probably a robocall, and I'm not going to pick it up. I'm sorry if I don't know the number. It's four one five five one zero six five zero or four zero eight. I all the San Francisco area codes. I rarely yeah. pick up. It's almost always if it's not in my context, the PR person I don't know calling. Sorry, PR I pick people, up four zero eight because it might instead. be Apple. <laughs> oh, that's right. It's true. I used to get the New York Times used to have their outgoing caller ID was set to one 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 for whatever reason. So if it, that showed up on my phone, I'd answer because it's one of my editors. But they've changed that, fortunately. Uh, oh, the other one that I've got a little attention that I think is hilarious. You start typing, you're adding someone to an email message or calendar invite. I always sound be like, hey, you usually also send email to these yeah. people at the same time. Maybe you'd like, it's like, oh my gosh. Well, which is which is good, but it sort of cracks yeah. me up. It's like, uh, no, I didn't want to invite Brian this time. I wasn't going to send him. Oh, no, my fine. <laughs> yes, <laughs> you too, Brian. Brian. Yeah. How much? Then you have there's in-app purchases where you, if you're an unpopular person among your friends, you can pay to have your email address to show up <laughs> in the suggested list. Don't forget, Glenn. <laughs> oh my gosh! So hey, so uh, you know we've got so much to talk about. We'll just we want to cover El Capitan. So let's uh, the iOS nine. So a lot of the stuff there's uh, uh, improvements. That one of the really interesting things is uh, a. Better use of battery time, and uh, I don't think I follow this entirely. I need to read more about it. There's sort of two modes, right? There's one is going to be just normal things that are going to improve it mm-hmm. through cleverness, and another is a, is a low power mode for that does even more. Do you understand the difference between that? Because I have not studied that closely yes. enough yet. Yes. So okay. So just anyone who installs iOS nine, Apple claims that they have you know, made the code more efficient to run on the hardware and that you can expect a, about an extra hour of battery life. Um, I don't think that they they specified which devices. So I'm going to assume that they mean like the iPhone 6. Um, but we will try to get clarification on that. Um, and so, so everyone will get better battery life. And usually when you up, like some people who don't update their iOS right away and they're waiting to hear like, oh, what is this going to do to my phone? And one of the things people are worried about is that, you know, the OS is going to be more resource intensive. It has more features, more bells and whistles, and this is going to affect my battery life. So Apple coming out and saying, no, 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 you're going to get better battery life by upgrading. Like that, that definitely perked my ears up. But then it also has a low power mode 
and they have this in Android. There is one on the on the Apple Watch. So um, they said on stage, they're like, oh, yeah, you know, when, when your, your battery's getting low and you don't want your phone to die, so you go through and you start, like, switching things off, and you're like, okay, no more automatic downloads and, and turn off Bluetooth and, and kill Wi-Fi and, and all, all these things. Um, there's going to be a one-tap low-power mode. I'm, I'm sure they'll just stick it in control center. And that will, they, they said, that's going to flip switches that you don't even know about. So it's going to go through and just do, do everything it can to, to turn off anything extra and get you extra battery life. So you can, I, I'm always worried at the end of the day if I'm going to have enough to, to get through my commute home and listening to, to music on my headphones. I don't, I don't want it to, I don't want to have to sit on the bus in silence. Like that's, that's hell. So, so yeah, they say that. I love that feature, the low power. Mm-hmm. I want them to do a low bandwidth thing too. Like I'm traveling internationally. I have an international data plan and I want you to give me the lowest possible bandwidth use If anything kicks up that I don't know about. Let me decline to have it access to you. Yeah, that would be great. And that would, that would save it would save power and bandwidth, but, um, you know, and there are, it's just, there's no good way to have a mode. I mean, that's what I think I like about this is they're going to give us some power savings and then a mode for even more if you need, you know, that extra. Yeah. And I want the same for bandwidth where it's like bandwidth is also a thing. Like I don't want to use excessive amounts. Uh, and we, we, we keep talking about this, this review to product called trip mode. That's for OS 10 that helps you, uh, restrict bandwidth at different Wi-Fi hotspots. So you don't use things. And it's like, that seems to still not really be, I mean, yeah, lo- smaller, iOS downloads, but they still aren't really focusing on that, which is a developing world thing and a developed world thing. Yeah. So the the low power mode, Apple says you can get up to three more hours on, of of battery life um, before your device finally just you know kicks it. So that would be really great if if that works. We'll we'll be testing that all the ways that we can. Um, but I think it's really cool that they're just letting you just do one tap and then it's going to go in. And I mean, there's not really a setting to be like, okay, I, I don't want my apps to refresh in the background quite so much right now because, you know, I'm running out of battery life. Like there isn't a switch for that. So, so they're building in, um, different, you know, things that, that the OS can do that, that you can't control right now. So that, so they're giving you just more control over how much battery life you'll use when it's, it's getting serious. Oh, I know. And the one, the, the feature I wanted to spend a little time talking about, maybe we should defer this, the news app. I think there's a lot oh, to yeah. talk about there. Uh, I've written, uh, I wrote a one initial article. I'm going to write another article about it. And maybe we'll talk about news app next week. So send your questions, folks, if you have uh, Glenn news has app opinions that, about the news app. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> well, you know, my, my big disclosure is I had a newsstand app, which I had to shut down because the subscription sales were too low to support yeah. the amb- the development cost being one of the things. But, and then the... Uh, the writing costs being the other, but the development costs are the big things. So I'm really interested in news app, and I have some real We have a news app, too. It. So, I mean, we have a newsstand app for, for Macworld right. Digital Magazine. So I'm very interested in this as well. I sent the links to, you know, the, the people above me, the, the stakeholders, as they call them, and said, hey, you guys should check this out. Because, um, yeah, there's a, there's a lot of publishers that are getting it on day one, and... It's it's interesting. There's a lot. There's more questions than answers about it. But yeah, we'll we'll get yeah. into that next week. I'll see if I can get. Uh, maybe we'll get a, a special guest. See if we can get a guest or two who knows something about the newsstand side of things. And that, uh, and if not, I have plenty of experience of yeah. my own. But we'll see. If we I was get really pleased to have there. your perspective. I was like, oh great, Glenn's going to go off on this. This is going to be. This is oh, gonna be fun. I got things to say. 
Um, so I think just two more quick things about iOS, and then we will we will talk about El Capitan. I think there's we'll all we'll, you know, we'll talk more about this in the future too. Of course, it's just uh, this is kind of our initial impression. This is longer uh, than so Apple's imp- keynote. <laughs> oh, I know. That's right. Well, it, it six more hours this podcast, folks. But um, but yeah, I think it's funny because all the little stuff takes longer and is harder to talk about than big stuff. When you're like continuity handoff, you know what you're like. All right, but then it's like oh. So oh, for instance, we haven't talked about split screen. Oh, so yeah. this is. I, I think Susie and I have just decided we're going to tell you more about El Capitan next week because we don't want to tax your patience. And, and this is wh- too much. Wh- yeah. While we have your attention on that topic, before we finish this discussion of iOS uh, 9, uh, this is, let me just take a, a quick break and talk about the mid-roll, which are the folks who handle advertising sales for this podcast. So, you know, the way this podcast runs in part is that we get support from sponsors, our fine sponsors you've heard already in this and other episodes. And in order for us to market the podcast better to advertisers, they like to know a little bit about you. Now, this is opt-in, of course. We don't know who you are. You can download this file, listen to it anywhere. That That's the joy of podcasts. We're not forcing any information out of any listeners. There's no requirement to listen to this free podcast. However, it's really useful to us and to keep this podcast going to get more information about who listens and and what they're about. And so we have this uh, arrangement with the mid-roll. They have a survey they'd like you to fill out that takes about five minutes. It's completely anonymous. They ask you about you and things you like to buy. And this helps us find advertisers that are well-matched to you, our listeners, and your interests. Who knows? You might hear new ads that are even more closely matched to things that you like to do. Uh, the, there is a little bit of a, a perk. They have a monthly drawing to win a $100 Amazon gift card for people who complete the survey. And even if you've taken a previous survey, we'd like you to take this new one. It's completely revised, and advertisers love the most up-to-date answers. So remember, you can win a $100 gift card. There'll be somebody picked from the survey. So go to podsurvey.com slash Macworld. That's P-O-D. S-U-R-V-E-Y, podsurvey.com slash Macworld. Um, This will help us tremendously so that we know more about you. And then we can tailor these podcasts. This isn't just for advertising. It helps us know uh, who's listening and what you like to hear. If you have general feedback, you can always send it to us at podcast at macworld.com or comment at macworld.com on the item in which this podcast appears. You can leave comments at the site. So uh, please go to podsurvey.com slash macworld to let us know about you and uh, in totally anonymous and you might be able to win. You'll have a chance at winning a $100 Amazon gift card. So thanks very much. And let's, so let's finish up our discussion of iOS. So split screen. So this is something that I think, uh, Gosh, what was the, it was some mobile operating system. Was it BlackBerry? Somebody had this feature a long time ago. And, um, and it, and it's, there's this interesting dichotomy, or not dichotomy, but, um, like a tension where people try not to be fanboys. You know, we say, all right, we're not going to defend everything Apple does. We have things we like, things we don't like. We're critical. But then you're like, you know, it's like, whoa, well, one app is fine. We don't need multitasking. It's like, no, no, it would actually be useful. <laughs> In some circumstances, to be able to have two side by side, not to be flipping back and forth. So, Susie, we're getting a new kind of multitasking. What, what do you think about the side by side or, or slide over modes? So great. Yeah, a lot of people use their com- their iPads as you know little computer replacements, especially if they're traveling or something. But I never really got too into that, partly because I'm worried about how my CMS would would react, but also because I never have just one window open. You know, I'm a writer, but I write on the internet. So I'm looking at the internet, I'm getting pictures, I'm getting um, links, and I'm, I'm always got two windows open. So it's really hard for me to to get a lot of product 
productive work done on an iPad. But split screen mode is going to be great. So there's there's one where you can put an app in a sidebar. So if you have, say, you're doing research and you have the notes app and you can kind of have it in a sidebar that slides in and out and you can drag things from from Safari in the in the larger window over to this. There's also a split screen where you have two apps running simultaneously, like the full the full app and multi-touch you can even, you know, like scroll up in one and scroll down in another and drag things back and forth and that looks really, really great. Um, that is only available on the iPad Air 2. Oh, okay. And that my understanding too is that developers will have to do some work for split view, or for not for split view, but for the slide over is like a different uh, app view. I yeah, think. Yeah, I think so. I, that's what I'm understanding. Where split view should be able. This is also well. So wait. So slide over will work on any device. It'll work on iPad Air, iPad Air two, iPad Mini two, and iPad Mini three. Ah. And okay. then presumably, is, you, know, you know, whatever the next one is. Right. And so split view, you need iPad Air 2. So some, so very specific, but this is obviously the direction. Yeah. And you wouldn't want to do this on an iPhone. Anyway, I mean, I shouldn't say on an iPhone, it would be sort of ridiculous. To have oh, split yeah. View, the screen isn't Maybe. I mean, yeah. So, and I think this is, I've already seen people say, this makes me want to go and get my iPad out and start using it again, because this was the frustrating part of having all that territory. It's like, if I need that territory, I'd rather use a laptop where I have multitasking. So, you know, if you're watching a movie, it's one thing, but if you're doing productivity, this seems to answer it. So, so yeah. So slide over. I so we think slide over requires developer work. Um, split view. My understanding is I think this is actually just uh, using flexible layout. This is the whole thing Apple's been moving towards for years, where they made developers as they started having different uh, densities and uh, resolutions and uh, dimensions ratios, I should say, uh, developers have had to work to have layouts that automatically resize. You know, just work in all these different formats. And if I understand right, I think SplitView will simply take advantage of that. I don't think developers have to rework their apps for like, I mean, they'll be able to customize to add another view, but I think existing apps will work in it without having to be reworked. So you won't have to wait for apps to become SplitView ready. Yeah, they said that if developers are already using, you know, those those layout tools, it, it, it should work. I think they might have to add a little thing, but they said it, it would not be difficult and it would not require, you know, a lot of recoding of the whole app. So some some developers already hinting on Twitter that like, you know, if I were to note that it wasn't that much of an effort and that I'd already recompiled something, well, I certainly couldn't say that, could I? It's like so this is what's fun is when Apple does something where developers are like, Yeah, it was five minutes. That's work. awesome. And, you know, then they refine it. But uh, the other uh, feature, screen feature, is, of course, picture in picture, which is going to be, it's just like both good and bad. I think it's great, but it's also like, it's all right. It's such a throwback. Like, like just hearing yeah, picture in picture funny. like sends me back to. I totally want that. I always, yeah. you know, it's I'm, I'm often watching a video and I don't necessarily need to see the, 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 uh, video part. I want to hear the audio, but I want to be able to see the video sometimes. And then you're switching apps. And sometimes depending on the app or web page, or if you're in Safari, sometimes you switch away and it stops playing, right? Because it, it's in a mode and you're out of that mode and the video stops playing. I'm like, I think this is really nice. I think yeah. Really usually nice. playing a video just takes over your whole, your whole device, especially if you're going to play it full screen, like you can't do anything else. So picture in picture will let you take a little video and just kind of, you know, zhoop, 
resize it down to, <laughs> to a little floaty window and then you could put it elsewhere on your screen, move it around if it's in front of something. So, you know, you can you can have whatever thing you're watching and then still be working. So that's, yeah, that's really nice. And that also requires iPad Air or better. So... Oh, yeah, I've been getting a lot of questions. So, like, if you look at the bottom, so like El Capitan, which they say, we'll, we'll get to El Capitan next week and the million things in there, all tiny. Uh, El Capitan does not yet have, um, as we're recording this, a system requirement list. And in the past, mm. yeah, in the past, OS ten to my recollection, OS ten uh, minor updates are uh, like Mountain Lion and Snow Leopard. I believe they encompass either all or nearly every device that the previous release had. That's my recollection. Yeah, it makes sense that it would be for all of them, but they went out of their way to say that iOS supported every device that iOS 8 would support, but they didn't They didn't mention that in the Mac. But the, I mean, they went through El Capitan super fast. They did, and, but I think, you know, what uh, someone said they have a 2007 Mac that is actually supports Yosemite, which I forgot it goes back that far. I wonder if that's right. Both they said it was 2007. So, uh, you know, El Capitan could actually have a pretty big scope. I know it'll support 2009 models. So maybe it does go back that far with some. I I could if I think uh, I had trouble running Lion on a 2007 Mac Pro, um, but then they improved Lion and it actually worked after I sold the Mac Pro. Um, but th- with iOS 9, if you look at the bottom of the iOS 9 preview page, the Apple site, they are I think really emphasizing backwards compatibility. Part of their part of their front against Android is uh, you know hey look mm-hmm. we're not fragmented. Look at this. Here are was a six, nine, nine, it's 15 devices um, that have been sold over, I think this is now four years. So from the iPhone 4S to present, the and everything but the original iPad. This supports the iPad 2. Yeah, iPad 2. Yeah, and the iPad mini. So God knows what the iPad 2 will be like running this. But essentially, the only the 2010 original iPad, uh, the iPad Touch before the fifth generation, and the iPhone 4 and earlier will not support this new release, which is a relatively small number of devices extant when you look at the, uh, the sales figures. So, yeah. And, and they didn't have the power to run this anyway. So that's, that's interesting. Oh, you know, there's one last thing I wanted to talk about. Well, two, I should mention the Android thing <clears throat> in terms of Apple's competition. Uh, wasn't mentioned in the keynote. It's at the bottom of the page. Android migration. There's oh, yeah. an app for Android and an app for iOS that let you uh, take your all of your Android settings. It's got a long list. Securely transfers contacts, message history, camera photos and videos, web bookmarks, mail accounts, calendars, wallpaper, DRM-free songs and books. And it will then suggest to you any free apps to download that are the same like Facebook and Twitter at Notes and will add to an iTunes wish list any apps that are paid that are on both platforms. So uh, I, I was discussing this on Twitter with people and I was told that that um, cell phone stores actually have apps like this that uh, that have been improved in various app stores that allow migration. So I don't know how comprehensive they are. This sounds really comprehensive as opposed to, say, moving contacts or email or so forth. This is like pretty much everything except, you know, app settings, I guess. So I, I think this is an interesting thing that they're just saying, nope, we're going to have a an Android migration app for those people who want a little extra help to make the move. Yeah, logging into your email, you know, on a new phone is is really no big deal. All that stuff is in the cloud now. But stuff like your message history is a really big deal. I mean, I don't know if you oh, ever yeah. just go in and like 
find, you know, one of your best buddies in your message thing and just kind of scroll back and look at all the hilarious messages you sent each other. Like, I would be really sad if all that went away. I got to find stuff. I have like business things where someone texted me something a year and a half ago and I apparently never wrote it down anywhere and I will do a spotlight search and on my Mac or, I mean, it'll be better actually in iOS 9 too, but I'll do a spotlight search on my Mac and find like, there's that phone number from 18 months ago. Mm-hmm. It's in that message history. Like, phew. Yeah. It's always striking to me too when you, when you click on a contact and messages and it shows you that little um there's a section of the screen that just shows all the attachments you've sent each other all the pictures and gifs and funny things and it's it's great i mean it's just it's just memory lane so so being able to transfer that and and having all your apps like all your free apps just automatically show up like that's pretty cool so it's just going to save a lot of time it's just kind of a nice thing and you know something we can kind of giggle about being like hi android High five, fellow GIF pronouncer. Oh, uh, yeah. The, uh, I, go, no, I go back and forth. In, oh, oh you're I haven't you're, committed you're to amphibious. one side or the other. Yeah. According to a recent headline, you're amphibious, you mean. Yes. Uh, uh, this will also help. I think it's a Genius Bar product, too, is I don't know what people did before, but now you take your Android phone and you make an appointment, and they transfer it using authorized Apple apps. They install it on your Android phone. You know, it just becomes one more service they can do simply. Uh, how about, so final thing, improved security. I've got an article about this that people will be able to find at Macworld.com. There's two elements they highlighted super quickly. I've been trying to find any more public or even private information that I couldn't discuss but would help me understand this for future articles. There is essentially no private information. <laughs> is it? Am I violating an NDA to say I can't find something? I forget how that works. Nope. But, That's uh, fine. <laughs> but I can't find any additional information about this. And, uh, and Apple is, uh, has uh, suggested there will be more clarity in the future as this moves towards um, beta and release. Uh, but they're, they're going to build two-factor authentication into iOS and uh, they confirmed for me into El Capitan. It wasn't mentioned in the keynote or on the on the page. And this is interesting because it's people might think that two-factor authentication is already in uh, iOS and OS 10, but it isn't. It kind of uses a notification system. And on iOS, I believe it's been using, it sort of hijacks the same conduit and tools used for find my iPhone or find my Mac. So this is going to be native integration into both operating systems that will provide some context. They have a couple screen captures that indicate that either you'll still have to type in a code as you do now, but it will be a six-digit code, which we can talk about in a second uh, for extra security. Um, but they also show this really intriguing thing, which is a you know native pop-up that shows a message like, hey, so-and-so is trying to, uh, this account is being logged in from another device, you know, iPhone, where it's at, shows a map with it and a don't allow and allow button. So instead of having to have the two devices in proximity, type in a code and it's a little bit of a wonky thing, it's gonna be a much more friendly thing. And um, right now, Apple IDs can have two-factor or two-step verification enabled. Two-factor usually implies that you have two separate devices or two separate processes for accessing the security information. So you've got the password and then something that's stored or kept in a very separate way. So it can't be accessed easily or at all by someone who might have access to the password unless they're the person who set it or owns it. Uh, So this... So right now, you're uh, like if I log into my developer account or I log into um, iTunes Connect for book sales as a publisher, uh, I'm not asked for a second factor for those situations. But I am if I log into iCloud.com and other things. This is apparently going to be a much more comprehensive, integrated tool to bring that level of two-factor security to other things. That seems cool to me. Yeah. I support it. Me too. It's about time. 
You like the, now the other one is six digit passcodes. You like this, Susie? Yeah. So so right now your passcode on your your iOS device defaults to what they call simple passcode, which is just four numbers. And a lot of people do that and you can there's a switch in in your passcode settings where you can turn off simple passcode and then you can make any kind of alphanumeric passcode that you want. So what I've been doing for a few years now, I think, is I've been switching off simple passcode but still keeping a number passcode and just making it six numbers. And if you do just numbers in your passcode, um, when you go to unlock your phone, it just shows you the numeric keypad, which is you know what people are used to with simple passcode. It's all numbers. So you don't have to deal with the whole keyboard coming up. Um, and I just type my six numbers, but then I do have to hit OK um, for, for it to know that I'm at the end of my passcode since it's a flexible length that can be as long as you want. So so what they're doing in iOS 9 is they're making they're turning off the default simple passcode. Like now it's it defaults to, to six numbers instead of four numbers. Um, and, and you can still use letters, but... And, and, and if you really want to go back to your four numbers, you can still go back to four numbers. So for me, it'll just save me, I guess, one tap of not having to tap OK, because it knows that when I get to six <laughs> numbers, that that's the end. But but yeah, that's I mean, that's an iOS 9 thing that you can get today if you just you go into your settings. So it's a small tweak, but they say it's it's I mean, six numbers is like exponentially more secure than four numbers. Who knew? It's great. It's, so all new users will be presented with this when they sign up uh, to use a code. And what their point is, and I think it's totally valid, is because, you know, essentially most, not all, but most Apple devices, uh, iOS devices being sold now have Touch ID. Mm-hmm. I don't know what the percentage is, but it's got to be, I mean, they're selling a few older phones. There's a few, isn't there an iPad model that's still sold? Yeah, iPad Mini 2 doesn't have Touch ID. So you're probably, I mean, it must be in the, I would guess it's in the 60 to 80 percent range of devices of touch ID. So the other thing is, if you have touch ID, you're only going to enter that six-digit code a, a handful of times in a session, and you might not reboot the device for weeks or months at a time. So you still have to remember it, but you're not going to be irritated by it. Here's the thing: there are some crackers who figured out, security researchers figured out a way to bypass an issue with um, power off on iPhone. They have to take the phone apart, but then they could automate. And they, there's a video of it online you can find. I'll link to it in the, my article where uh, they just show the phone being cracked. It, they punch in a code through this automated system, or it punches it in. Then bef- when it fails, it powers it off instantly and then reboots it. And it does this, so it could take from six seconds to 17 hours to break a four-digit code. Now, I did the math, and if you take 17 and you cube it, you get about seven months. So if you have a code that's, uh, know, on average, a code that has six digits or a million combinations, as long as those aren't obvious, like one, two, three, four, five, six, don't use that. Now that I've said it, don't use six five four three two one either. Uh, you're going to be somewhere in the you know multi month range to crack a random six digit code. Why that's important is uh, there is definitely some evidence that if phones are jailbroken or if someone has a zero day exploit where they can get into iOS and run cracking software natively on the phone to run through the codes, uh, that this can take as little as 20 minutes for a four-digit code as opposed to 17 hours. So you're still putting that up into the multi-week range. Um, All of these things assist both, I would say, general user security and also more like 
you know, heavier user security. If you ever think your phone is at risk of being intercepted, you want to use a strong passcode, not just a six-digit one, but an actually complicated password, which you can still do in the new system. But this sets the base level higher, which increases the integrity of your device even for, you know, casual purposes. Or if some criminal, you know, if there's some exploit that makes it easy for criminals to punch in a bunch of codes, six digits still means they just don't have the time to do it to be useful to them, to, grip, to grab your data. Yeah, and it's not that much harder for, for people to remember six digits than than four. I mean, you could use your regular four-digit passcode and just put, you know, a nine on each end. Or you could use, like, the zip code you had growing up and just shove a zero on the end of it. So That's the thing. You want a certain degree of entropy. Yeah, it's going to be harder to crack, but not that much harder to remember. So I think that makes it a win-win. Yeah, I think it's part of Apple's overall message. Like the fact that they threw this in, even though they didn't have a lot of detail, is like, you know, this is. Uh, I, I'm including a tweet in my article from a security researcher who said, "Boy, the FBI is gonna be really pissed about this know, yeah. <laughs> because there's a little bit of, you know, there's a lot of response from Google, Apple, Facebook, uh, Microsoft, and others about government intrusion, whether United States or others, and all these little things. Like some of these are like, okay, we know that you might have the way to break this. Well, we've just made it literally two orders of magnitude harder. So, bah. You know, <laughs> this is for this is for our users. It's perfectly legal, and we think we're in. And there's uh, no reason not to. Uh, okay, wow. You know, I was thinking there wasn't that much to talk about with iOS nine. I was wrong. I was wrong. So much. Uh, but we'll be back next week to talk about El Capitan and uh, the news app, which I think will be. You know, we won't see the news app. It's not part of uh, the developer release. I think I can say that because developers have been talking publicly that they cannot find the news app in the developer release of iOS nine. But ostensibly, the public beta. That is coming uh, for both uh, El Capitan and um, OS 9 July. in uh, July. Yeah. yeah, so that will ostensibly have the news app and we'll be able to see it. And uh, and we can talk about that too. So thank you, Susie, for this uh, in-depth discussion of WatchOS 2 and iOS 9. Yeah, thanks. So yeah, next week we'll talk Capitan. We'll talk uh, Apple Music. Um, oh, Apple Music. Yeah, Good I greenies. know. So much. Oh. I think it was more packed than I realized. But, it went uh, really fast. And props to Apple for keeping it kind of tight because we watched, a th- you know, I, I've been helping my, my colleagues cover these other developer conferences. And the Microsoft Build keynote was three hours. And the Google I.O. keynote was over two hours. So, it yeah, it was a lot of information really, really fast. We've got a lot of good summaries on Macworld. If you're like, look, I don't want to watch an hour and a half of Apple's video um, just, just tell me the good stuff. Uh, you know, visit Macworld, and and we'll we'll summarize it for you. But then, yeah, we'll be back in next next week to talk about more. So thanks, folks, for listening to another episode of the Macworld podcast, and thanks to our sponsors, Red Hat and the Great Courses. And remember, fill out that anonymous survey by midroll to help us understand what you like at podsurvey.com/macworld. We'll be back next week. This has been the Macworld Podcast, episode 460 for June 10th, 2015. Thanks for listening.